Thanks for tuning in. I'm Gillian Knipe, artist and creator of Art Fictions. Before we begin, here's a friendly reminder that for a small and virtually insignificant monthly fee at patreon.com slash artfictionspodcast, we can keep the program free from advertising. My guest today is author and art writer Jennifer Higgy, and we are going to talk about how women found agency within the rise of spiritualism, telephoning the dead, art history as a work in progress, tigers of wrath, the golden age of female detective fiction, hanging out in Greece, bridge builders, astrology, precognitive dreams, human cruelty, climate crisis, bad writers, ghosts, eccentricities that make complete sense, and taking your brain with all of its complications wherever you go. Plus, Jennifer's passion for histories of exclusion, particularly those of women. Welcome to Art Fictions, Jennifer Higgy. Thank you so much for having me, Gillian. So for our discussion today, you've chosen the novel Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead, and it's by Polish writer Olga Tokarczuk, and I can't hold up my book for this because I've got it on my Kindle. It just looks really sad. But well, it's a beautiful, simple cover with uh, like all of Fitzcarraldo editions because, you know, I didn't read it in the Polish. I read it in the English. Uh, apologies. But, um, yeah, so it's classic Fitzcarraldo with blue background and, and white font, if you can imagine it. And I will say right here that Fitzcarraldo editions, they deserve a plug. They're a brilliant uh, publisher and quite a few of the books that have appeared on Art Fictions have been Fitzcarraldo books. And they keep creating Nobel Prize winners, it seems, that if you publish with Fitzcarraldo, you win a Nobel Prize. (laughs) Okay, noted, noted. Olga Tokarczuk also uh, wrote Flights, which won the Man Booker International Prize. In fact, this book was originally the first choice of Mark Tanner award-winning sculptor Francis Richardson, who I interviewed in episode 15. But we ended up talking about Virginia Woolf. How did that happen? How did you go from Olga she, to Virginia? Well, she went for a safe bet. And okay. it was the right thing. Now that I've read this, I think right. it was the right thing for Francis's practice. Okay. But she had discovered mm. this book and was completely blown away, mm. as was I, as mm. were you. So just very quickly, Drive Your Plough is a mystery novel set in a small mountainside village. Mm-hmm. In fact, Katie Pratt, who's my previous guest, she chose a book that was set in an alpine village. So we've now got a theme running, but it will completely fall apart in the next art fictions episode. Uh, Anyway, this one's set in Poland during the winter. Mm -hmm. The protagonist, Janina, is caretaker of the neighbouring houses, which are normally empty in the winter, and spends time translating the poems of William Blake into Polish with her friend and ex-student, Dizzy. They're somewhat distracted from this role as the book develops and a murder mystery ensues. Mm. So I normally would ask people, why did you choose this book? And yet when I open your book to the very first chapter, A Season in the Life of a Thought, I read to see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild Mm. flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour from William Blake. Mm. So there's the connection already, mm. but tell me in your words, Jennifer, yeah, why did I you mean, choose the book? Yeah, I mean, there is the connection. I've always loved Blake. How can, how can you not, in a way? Um, but one of the reasons, I, I mean, there are many reasons why I love this novel, um, Drive Your Plough. 
And I've, I've always loved detective fiction and especially the sort of golden age of female detective fiction, like the 1930s. So you've got Agatha Christie or Dorothy Sayers or, you know, Marjorie Allingham, a lot of these, you know, brilliant writers. And so before I'd read any of Olga Tukarchuk's books, I'd, I'd sort of assumed that, you know, she was a Nobel Prize winner. She was going to be rather intimidating and very dense. And, and I was, um, on a Greek island when I was researching my book, The Other Side. And my friend Sylvia was reading this book and she was lying on the rocks in the sun and she kept laughing. And I was like, why is she, you know, this is a Nobel Prize. Laughter surely can't be an appropriate response. Anyway, and she said, you have to read this. And she said, I think it'll be, it'll be useful for your research into the other side. And so I was intrigued and I started reading it and I absolutely was bowled over by this book because it's not only a brilliant murder mystery, it's very funny. The main protagonist, Janina, is an absolutely brilliant original character, a woman in her it's unspecified, I think, 60s or 70s, and and uh, she's feisty, she's intellectual, she's scientific, but she's driven by astrology. Her pronouncements are often absolutely eccentric, but somehow always make sense, and often words are randomly in uppercase. So there's interesting uh, sort of emphases put on put on the narrative. I mean, without giving too much away, in a classic Agatha Christie mode, it, it's got an unreliable narrator. And uh, the ending is brilliant. It's full of twists. But it's also a profound book about human cruelty to animals, human cruelty to each other, about the importance of connection and loyalty, protecting the environment. I mean, it's a, it's a staggering book. It's a wonderful novel. You can read it for fun and you can read it for deep philosophical reasons as well. Yeah. I've, I've actually never met a book that ticks so many boxes. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Although when you said when you said that the philosophical reading or or mm. the lightweight part of it, you know, the childhood of Jesus was a, a bit like that for me. Where um, that was actually another podcast discussion I've just realised uh, with Dean Kenning. There's the story of what happens to Jesus this um, is a novel. In, in in this book. Yeah, oh, it's, it's okay. absolutely oh, superb, but it's so oh. dense with right. philosophy. But yeah. the humour, I didn't expect the yeah, humour either. Really funny. I yeah. laughed all the way through it because. Yeah. Janina, the main character, is so deadpan. Yeah. Uh, like at some point somebody comes to her door and yells out, Janina, and she says, oh, for that reason alone I don't want to answer mm. the door because mm. she doesn't like her name. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, her. She's she often seems to have the, you know, take against people for what seem to be quite superficial reasons, but then they end up being quite profound reasons in a way. Yeah. yeah. And then you've got all those – Epigraphs from William Blake, mm. a lot uh, taken from the Proverbs of Hell, yeah. Songs of Innocence, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Yeah. So, you know, there's a, there's a weighty title in itself. And, uh, you know, things like prisons are built with stones of law, brothels mm. with bricks of religion. Mm. Uh, and my favorite one, I must admit, is the tigers of wrath are wiser than the horses of instruction. Mm. And so one of my difficulties with researching for this podcast mm. <laughs> discussion, there was so much additional reading. Mm. I mean, you've written so much and mm. there was so much in Tukarchuk's book that you end up going through down all sorts of wonderful, wonderful rabbit holes. I absolutely loved it. But coming back to the the main character, Janina, she yeah. doesn't like her name. And I did look it up and the Polish 
origin meaning of her mm. name is God is gracious. Mm. <laughs> She's not really a God-fearing person. No. Um, that but is, she becomes quite godlike in herself, I think. She absolutely does. Yeah. There's this fantastic scene uh, that I want, want to highlight, which is where she is in the church and she's raging to the priest who's going on and on about mm. the, the, the great glory of hunting. Mm. And she's saying, you know, you're, you're teaching this to mm. our children. Mm. And when, when she's justifying her rage, she says, well, you know, glorifying killing is evil. It's mm. as simple as that. For this outburst she has in the church, she is threatened with being arrested. She mm. loses her job. You know, it's really devastating. And it reminded me straight away of the story of Jesus in the temple, which has been turned into a marketplace. Oh, yeah. And he has this big rage. That's a good point. Yeah. But he ends up, yeah. you know, glorified. Yeah. She yeah. ends up losing her job. Yeah. Poor thing. Yeah. And but she- don't you think it's interesting that her job is, I mean, she was a teacher, but she was also yeah. a bridge engineer. She was literally building bridges, you know. Yeah. So as a brilliant metaphor for someone who is – an extraordinary communicator and who's so feisty. She's a bridge builder. Yeah. I love that. Her being a bridge engineer, uh, I think, points towards a certain intellect Mm. uh, that is perhaps relating to her interest in astrology, you know, Mm. to take your book, The Other Side, and between alive and dead. You know, in one scene there's her mother is – she's in the house and Janine is saying, you know, this is not a place for the Mm. dead – in the life of the living. Mm. And I mean, that's, that's a very 19th century thing, actually. This, this connection between a belief in the other side or the paranormal or being able to contact the dead um, was really aligned with developments in science as well. When the X-ray was invented, for example, or the radiogram or the telegram, the idea that you could see or hear what was previously inaccessible. You know, you could see inside a person. You could communicate across great distances with telegrams. And so it led, it really led to this idea that, you know, explorations into the other side were quite valid. And that's why so many physicists as well were so interested in, you know, developments around um, psychic research or seances. For example, Thomas Edison developed a telephone, um, which he hoped he'd be able to call the dead. And um, Marie Curie was really interested in spiritualism and theosophy. So, you know, I think the fact that Janina is a scientist, but she's also very interested in these other belief systems, I think is strongly in a, in a spiritualist tradition. You know, I mean, I've got a little quote here about when she talks, she sort of justifies her interested in, or rather, not justify, she doesn't have to do that. Mm. She explains her interest in astrology and she says, I've been practicing astrology for many years and I have extensive experience. Everything is connected with everything else and we are all caught in a net of correspondences of every kind. They should teach you that at police training college. It's a solid old tradition from Swedenborg. She's telling that to one of the police officers <laughs> who are investigating the crime. Yeah, I mean, in I fact, love that. Yeah, and of course superb. they just think she's bonkers, but she's not. Yeah. yeah, everybody thinks she's bonkers. Yeah, and just to come back to that quote though, um, she does say, you know, perhaps you might refer this to mm. the police astrologer. Mm. You know, as if there would be a police yes, astrologer. Exactly. <laughs> but- Actually, and I've got the quote here from Blake uh, yeah. about the title. It's from the Proverbs of Hell. Yes. And the quote is, in seed time learn, 
in harvest teach, in winter enjoy. Drive your cart and plow over the bones of the dead. You know, so it's a very, well, it's Blake, so of course it's profound, but it's a sort of directive about how to live, but it's also, there is something uh, in it that is acknowledging that we all drive our plows over the bones of the dead, you know, in the way that we live. We can't, we can't live without the dead because they instruct us mm. and they have come before us and we should turn to them to learn things as well, I think. Yeah. I mean, that Blake is implying that the dead, the bones of the dead literally nourish the soil that we are dependent upon. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And then it becomes this sort of murky or muddy thinking about ploughing um, borderland or borderline mm. between the dead and alive. Mm. And and Janina at one point does talk about that. I love I love crossing boundaries. I love crossing borders. You know, I love that um, game of and I used to do this in Australia of having a foot in mm. each place on on a border. Yeah, so like you, a state border or something. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's so many places that you can't do that now. I've done that in Turkey when you have one foot in Asia and one foot in Europe. Oh, wow. That's That's exciting. (laughs) Definitely. She does this in so many ways, sort of straddles those those borders where, you know, you were talking before about the use of capital letters and Mm. at one point she says it was a winter afternoon, gloom was already pouring into the day room through the small windows and I couldn't see the expression on his face. Now, she's talking about Mm. the policeman. I couldn't Mm. see the expression on Mm. the policeman's face. But, of course, it reads like I couldn't see the expression on Gloom's face as Ah. if Gloom is a character that's, you know, walked into the room. But she does that all over the place with her, you know, like her ailments with a capital A. Yeah. And then there's the humanization of everything, which she does with her car. Yes. Her car's called Samurai. This is a character. The car is like an accomplice for yeah. everything she's doing, you know. So essentially, I mean, she's an animist, you know, that everything yeah. has a life to it, a life force. Yeah, as you yeah. say, whether it's her car or the stones or the animals in the field in front of her house or every everything has a soul. And she really throws up this idea of what what's, I suppose, normal, what's reasonable. You know, you were talking before about how she everybody thinks she's bonkers, mm to her face and she will say I know everybody thinks I'm Mm. crazy but every time she talks I think that makes complete sense Mm. to me where her rationality is deemed Mm. as crazy to everybody else and isn't that a telling reflection of the world that someone who is basically expressing say compassion for animals is considered a nut for example yeah shall I read my quote now yes do that beautiful quote from the book and this just stopped me in my tracks this quote So Janina proclaims that reality has grown old and gone senile. After all, it is definitely subject to the same laws as every living organism. It ages. Just like the cells of the body, its tiniest components, the senses succumb to apoptosis. And apoptosis is a natural death brought about by the tiredness and exhaustion of matter. In Greek, this word means the dropping of petals. The world has dropped its petals. So, you know, I think this is such a fascinating idea, the idea that reality itself has grown old, you know, that we're tiring of the material world and so we're looking perhaps for different ways of understanding it. And so that's why it really chimed with my um, book, I guess, in terms of what many of these artists and, and writers who I discuss have been 
looking for alternative ways of understanding the world. Yeah, and in some cultures, because this this is where categorization of this part of the world called the Western world comes into play, because so much of the indigenous cultures mm. have, al- have always maintained that connection. Mm. And now we're knocking on the door of a lot of those cultures saying, do you mind, we were ignorant you know what what mm. you demonstrate in your book with it with the artists that you talk about and also what's in this book mm. is this sort of tangle of imagination and madness and women's rights and spirits and witches and astrology and logic you know this cacophony of mm. inputs that all coincide and that are all very reasonable all have a right to be there i mean this whole idea of being reasonable i think is up for discussion and i i draw a, a sort of connection between the current moment and say in the first world war when dada emerges you know in 1916 in cabaret um voltaire in zurich mm. because you know at, at that point you know the world had gone to hell 20 million young men are mm. uh, being slaughtered for idiotic reasons mm. and it's entirely sanctioned by governments and by so-called reason mm. and mm. so the idea in 1916 was well if this is reasonable we're going to create our own sense of what is reasonable. And so they create, you know, an absurdist cabaret, which they feel is a much more reasonable response to the world yeah. than blowing up boys on battlefields. So, And I think that there is a parallel now when we look at the climate crisis or we look at the rise of the right or we look at, you know, a whole manner of terrible things that are happening, the war in Ukraine, wars in other parts of the world, famines. Well, maybe the ways that we've been assuming are the right ways to respond to the world could do with some quite, you know, severe modification. Critique, maybe, is a better word. Yeah. That's absolutely true. I want to move on slightly now because I want to be able to talk about your book more directly. But Mm -hmm. just before I do, Janina at one point... Um, speaking of the unreliable narrator, and she does she does set that up straight away, mm. um, and she throws in anything that's convenient at the time. Like mm. I could lift this big rock and throw it because mm. actually I used to be a champion. I don't know discus thrower <laughs> or something or other. And uh, she gives her impression of things, and her impression of things is a fact. And mm. if somebody else's impression of things is unreliable mm. and not a fact, so you're not quite sure. What, what is actually mm. a fact and what isn't. And uh, one of the residents of one of the houses that she looks after mm. is a writer who she refers to as the grey lady. Mm. And she says, in a way, people like her, those who wield a pen, can be dangerous. At once a suspicion of fakery springs to mind that such a person is not him or herself, but an eye mm. that's constantly watching and whatever it sees changes into sentences. Mm. In the process, it strips reality of its most essential quality, its inexpressibility. So it's like Olga Tokarczuk, the writer, describing a character, describing a writer. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I wondered, as a writer, mm. what do you make of that? Because you've written fiction and non-fiction mm. and we're also looking at a particular text of mm. fiction that is very weighty in its philosophical content um, and sociological content and as you say presents alternative ways of looking at the mm. world I mean yes it's a, it, it's a really interesting quote isn't it because it's it's very um it's both critical of writing but it's also praising of writing you know because I think that mm. um, Janina 
finds people who are dangerous quite, you know, important as well, because she herself, as we learn to discover, is quite dangerous. So um, I think there's a nervousness in this quote around bad writing, you know, a suspicion of fakery springs to mind. And, you know, the idea that maybe a bad writer strips reality of its most essential quality, which is its inexpressibility. And I mean, that's, I guess, the great paradox of all writers and artists is that you're constantly struggling to express the inexpressible. So you will never be able to do it. All you can do is approximate it or evoke something. So um, Olga is being wonderfully self-critical here as a writer and warning herself of where she could go wrong. It's really wonderful. That's That's such a great quote. So moving on to your practice, uh, Jennifer, you're a writer of a wide range of texts, including The Mirror and the Palette, Rebellion, Revolution and Resilience, mm-hmm. 500 Years of Women's Self-Portraits, a children's art book. Oh, just a children's book. A children's book. an art book, yeah. Oh, but the, I, I did the pictures for it and wrote it. Oh, you did the pictures? Because yes. I was going to say it yes. is like an art book. Yes, it's so really I illustrated beautifully it. painted. Oh, thank you. Um, collage, actually. The whole yeah, thing yeah. is scissors and glue, which is quite funny. And I remember when it got accepted by the publisher, they yeah. said, oh, it's so unusual to see something that is literally handmade because most of the kids coming out of, or I shouldn't say kids, young people coming out yeah. of maybe illustration courses, they do it digitally. Yeah, so, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do. didn't know yeah. how to do that, so I just... <laughs> oh, well. Did collage and scan them. Wow. Yeah. It was absolutely super and a surprise yeah. to discover, actually. Yeah. And uh, you've done a myriad of essays uh, on mm. various artists, some yeah. of which are book extracts, which you can listen to on BBC Radio 3's program, The Essay. And uh, you've also written art pieces in books, magazines, and as exhibition features, mm. including for Australian painter Helen Johnson. Yes, she's great. Her work's a personal favourite of mine. And a couple of her pieces can actually be seen right now at Tate Modern's A Year in Art Australia, 1992. By the way, 1992, it sort of springboards from the groundbreaking Eddie Marbo case. Mm -hmm. Uh, So for people who don't know, when it comes to Australia, at this point, the British had to admit that someone else was there first. You've actually penned a film script. Mm -hmm. Uh, I really hate my job. It's based on when I was a waitress, because when I came oh, to London. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I was a waitress on and off for about 15 years altogether. Yeah, yeah. So it was very much based on waitressing. Okay. Mm. And um, you've just published, as I said earlier, The Other Side, A Journey into Women, Art, and the Spirit World with Orion Books. And we're going mm. to talk about that later. But firstly, mm. I would like to just point out that you were once a painter. Yeah. Yeah, and you went to art school and everything. So brilliant. But then over time you made a transition to write. But you still dabble. You can't not, surely. Well, no, I did stop for a very long time. And, I mean, I, I was I mean, I mean, was a painter for a good 10 years, really yeah. solidly. And I actually came to London on a painting fellowship from VCA in Melbourne. So with my writing, I was feeling a lot of doubt around my painting at that point. So I started writing a lot. And um, but I've, it, I know this might sound a bit silly, but I've never really felt that I've stopped painting in the sense that it's it trains you to look at the world in a particular way or analyze it or you know so it inflects everything I do. I think, yeah, mm. That mm. training for so long. Yeah, I think it makes a real difference um, to to writing. Mm. I mean, I would always say that I try and write from inside the work, and I do find mm. my way out, but. 
you know, there's nothing like the reality of start, starting with blankness mm. and having to start making decisions mm. from, from absolute zero. Mm. And most of the time, the rest of the time we, when, that we function in the world, uh, there's something there. Mm. There's something there for us to agree with, rail mm. against, turn around, circumnavigate. Mm. And uh, it, it's funny that you talk about the, you know, hating your job and the idea of the waitressing because – you did live for a while in Greece and you described this in your book saying, you know, we, we tried to sell homemade postcards, obviously well before Tracy Emin and Sarah Lucas did that. And uh, you were doing yoga and swimming and painting and eating on the terrace and various versions of, uh, of aubergine and tomatoes, mm. reading Homer's Odyssey. It sounds like you're mm. living in a movie. Mm. Wasn't like that? Was like that? Was it like living in a movie? I mean, you know, but within all of that, you don't have a script. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, and not much money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, incredibly broke. Um, you know, we were living in nothing, practically. Mm. Um, constant anxiety about how to be creative and earn money. And, you know, when I went back from Greece at that point, I was waitressing again and... You know, so, I mean, it does sound romantic and it is romantic because Greece is extraordinary and I love mm. living there and or staying there for a few yeah. months and, you know, and I go back whenever I can. But, you know, it's still, you still take your brain and all of its complications with you wherever you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 The light, the light there mm. is absolutely exquisite. Mm. So you had, so you had what seemed like quite a romantic life with all sorts of, complications to it and uh at, at some point you were working for freeze magazine you became editor of freeze magazine mm-hmm. uh, for a long time and then editor at large i don't think you work there at all anymore do you no no, no i don't no so i stepped down fully as editor at large in 2021 yeah so very very recent and you mm-hmm. have talked about this sort of lockdown solitude mm. um that you had where you wanted to return to a place of speculation mm. open yourself up to new ways of inhabiting mm. the world and embracing doubt you know nurturing curiosity writing with no conclusion did make me think of painting actually mm. when you <laughs> the, your description mm. of that yeah it's very true but you did in fact manage to write during that time in fact you wrote a book that i um read a while ago called Bedlam uh, in 2006, which imagines a year in the life of the painter Richard Dabb. Mm. So just so that people know, uh, he when he returned to England after a grand tour of Europe, Syria and Egypt, this is in 1842, he murdered his once beloved father at the request of Osiris, is mm. that how you say it? The Egyptian god Osiris, yeah. Yeah, So he was Osiris. channeling yeah. Osiris. I mean, it's a terrible tragedy. And, um, yeah, so he he felt that he – and he was very close to his father and his – you know, and, and Richard at this point had really exhibited, you know, very what might be called extreme bipolar incidents sort of, mm. of um, mm. visions. He would only eat boiled eggs and drink ale and, I mean, he really um, – was extremely unwell and and his father was constantly advised to put Richard in what was then an asylum but he refused because he loved his son and he thought he could heal him by having him at home and and then tragically Richard believed that his father was an imposter 
that a devil had mm. inhabited his father's body. So he didn't feel like he was murdering his father. He felt like he was murdering the devil who who was inhabiting his father's body. Mm. And then he went to Bedlam, Bethlehem Hospital, uh, known as Bedlam, um, and then Broadmoor. And it was in those hospitals. They actually had reasonably enlightened governors for the time, and he was given paint materials and canvases, and he created some of his most extraordinary paintings. The most famous is The Fairy Fellows Masterstroke, which he spent 10 years painting, and it was unfinished. But it's actually on view now at Tate Britain, if you want yeah. to go and see it. Wasn't it commissioned by the the governor or something? No, it wasn't the, commissioned. Asylum, it or? wasn't commissioned. It was purely – he did it off his own bat. Right. But what happened was, because he was painting quite extraordinary paintings in Bedlam and Broadmoor, and the governor actually was buying them. I mean, I could be getting this slightly wrong, but I felt that they might have seen that there could be something quite lucrative on the side as well from mm. this very brilliant inmate – Mm. He was never released. He died incarcerated. So how did that book came up, come about? Because you, I, I think you mentioned um, mm. somewhere that I read that when you were in Greece, you were thinking of him. I, I started that book, I mean, in the late 90s when I was in oh, Greece. Okay. Yeah. And so I'd seen a really amazing exhibition of Victorian fairy painting at the Royal Academy. Mm. And uh, it was on at the same time as Sensation, the big sort of YBA show. And, you know, the YBA is... About, you know, to varying degrees, great, but I wasn't particularly interested in that kind of work. And then there was this small. Bit, bit too shouty. I yeah, believe. too shouty. <laughs> and um, so there was this sign of this, you know, Victorian painting show upstairs. Mm. And I went up and it was all sort of five year olds and grandmothers in there looking at these pictures. And I, <laughs> I thought it was some of the most extraordinary paintings I had ever seen in my yeah. life. Mm. And I saw Richard, I, I saw the Fairy of Fellows Masterstroke, and I was like, what is this? I mean, it's a tiny painting or small painting and, you know, it's so detailed. You know, you look at a leaf that has a dewdrop on it and in the dewdrop there's another image and uh, and it was an invented fairy world and it was just so amazing and I wanted to know more about this artist and then I discovered that, you know, he was part of this group in London in the 1840s, and he was known for his charm, his good looks. He, Everyone loved him. He was a really gentle character. He lived with his sisters and brothers in this big house with his father. His mother had died. And he was really, really popular and extremely brilliant and, you know, had a very sweet temperament. So, And then he went on this grand tour. He was chosen because of his brilliance with, with this guy called Sir Thomas Phillips, who was a rather pompous former mayor of a regional town and he went on this trip and gradually he you know lost his mind I mean he could have been what used to be called schizophrenic and Mm. um, just he was overstimulated by the art that he saw and he had a sort of breakdown when he was in Egypt but that was when he embraced Osiris and became a devotee of Osiris Mm. and so anyway I heard sort of the bare bones of this story and I thought what the what happened on that year when he went travelling, you know, he leaves perfectly sane and he comes back and murders his father. And he also tried to kill someone else when he fled to France in a carriage, but luckily the person survived. And so I just, so I read everything I could about him and looked at his letters and his pictures. And then I wrote a novel from his perspective about that year, which looking back seems a bit mad for me to do that. And so in a sense, it's almost like a prose poem. Yeah, it's interesting that thing of, you know, 
relating back to Drive Your Plow the, and mm. Janina and this idea of madness as invention and mm. madness as destructive mm. and that sort of very precarious um, divide between them. One thing that really, really struck me about your book, about Bedlam, you observe all the intricate details of Richard Dad's painting and you have this way that you've written in that book that I feel is quite loyal to his paintings, oh, that, that is about that sort of meticulous mm. detail, that meticulous noticing, mm. that really deep reflection. I'm, I'm just going to do a little quote from there. It's one point at which uh, the painter reflects, you know, painting is not a mountain. Nothing is more paralyzing to me than the idea that a picture is something to scale. A picture is something to be crept into, peeled back, dug away, closed, undressed, and dreamt. There are no mountains to be scaled in my pictures. They are places to hide in. Now, coming from it's quite being... Good, isn't it? it's, quite, it's pretty good, isn't <laughs> I it? I read this for so many years. <laughs> but coming it's quite from... Weird. It's like someone else wrote it. Yeah, really. but yeah. coming from being a painter... Mm. And and having explored his work, mm. um, that's the sort of writing that you want right. to see. That, as I say, is an excellent accomplice to his, his actual paintings. Thank you. Wow. But it's not the only book, and we I want to mainly talk about the other side: uh, a journey into mm. women, art, and the spirit world. I'm just going to refer to it as the other side. Sure. So you have talked about how you experienced frequent sort of unexplainable mm. things in your life and it mm. sort of has opened up this belief mm. that uh, time and space are more complex than we assume. And here we are now in a book pretty much celebrating that mm. and the women that have mm. practised in this thing called spiritualism, spiritual guides, mm. etc. What What's your sense of that now? Because, it, it, you know, a bit like meaning in... To Karchuk's yeah. book, obviously, yeah, it changes over time. So what do you get a sense of spirituality then, spirituality now? Where, where is the book coming from? Where does it place itself? Well, I mean, spirituality is, you know, a broad church, excuse the pun. Yeah. And so I use it as a sort of catch-all term because it can mean so many different things. I mean, mm. and in my book I discuss, you know, theosophists, sort of straight-up spiritualists, uh, women who were Christians but they trusted in seances, um, Buddhism, Hinduism, m more sort of um, animistic beliefs um, like with Tokachok. So, you know, there are, there are many different ways of approaching what this word spiritualism might mean. And, you know, I'm, I came to it from a position of just curiosity about, you know, why was it that, you know, some really extraordinary women were making art in the 19th and early 20th centuries, exploring ideas around, say, abstraction and how that might be able to reflect, um, in the words of Annie Bussant, thought forms, or what it might mean to channel different energies to create um, images that even the artist doesn't fully understand. Um, especially it was seeing the Hilmraff Clint show in 2013 mm. at the Moderna Museum in Stockholm. I just, that, that sort of rewrote everything for me. I mean, in, in one interview, I've described her as, um, she was my gateway drug in a way oh, into really? looking at women and art because I've always been interested in, in ghosts and premonitionary dreams and, uh, deja vu and, and, you know, I haven't met 
a soul who hasn't had some sort of experience, you know, that they can't fully explain. But looking at it in terms of the development of modernism, I think, you know, has there's so much more work to be done with all of that, I think. Because mm. you were talking in the book, or you do talk about um, Kandinsky, and you, you've got this wonderful part where you say, you know, if, if I and my fellow students had mm. been exposed to the work of radical women artists mm. and taught basic sociology instead of mm. the assumption that innovation was the preserve of powerful men mm. and the vitality of Composition 5, which is Kandinsky's mm. painting of 1911, uh, the achievement of a lone genius, I would have discovered that the evolution of any artistic language is complex, organic and unpredictable part of a meandering, often heated conversation that spans gender, race, borders, communities, belief systems, and centuries, and that even now hasn't reached a conclusion. I might have understood that the liberation promised by new artistic languages applies to everyone, and that language is malleable. And you do refer to um, a lot of different groups Mm. outside of, you know, that's just shortcut it and say the white male, Mm. um, a lot of groups have been ignored, Mm. exploited, and we're both from Australia, and so we know there's a lot of history, difficult history, and uh, also very hopeful Mm. um, changes with Indigenous painters. So much of the book is looking at the women who were really the instigators, the, the great starters of spiritualism, mm. uh, as well as the women who were the great painters mm. uh, of spiritualism. Tell me about the artists that you've chosen for the book. Mm. Were they it, – it almost feels to me like this is a life-led rather than, right, who are you studying mm. from an academic perspective or anything like that? Mm. You know, this isn't an academic book at all. I'm not an academic. Yeah. So it's, you know, very much led by my own curiosity and interests and tastes and, you know, so in that sense it's quite idiosyncratic. But um, I start with, I mean, I don't start, it sort of moves back and forward in a fairly non-linear way, but um, the earliest person I talk about is Hildegard Bingen, the Mm. brilliant um, German uh, nun, who was a composer and an artist, um, who had visions, who was a naturopath, a healer, um, a gardener. I mean, she's really extraordinary. I mean, she never studied music, but somehow she managed to create this sublime notation that, um, and she puts it down directly to a belief in, in God. And I mean, I think it's important to remember too, you know, sometimes people say to me, oh, you know, but this is all very new thing this spiritualism and art and I go well look at the renaissance Mm. you know the Mm. renaissance is full of demons and spirits and angels and transformations and transfigurations you know as is greek art for Mm. example or greek myths as well so um but my journey uh went from hildegard bingen then we leap forward to the 19th century and the birth of sort of modern spiritualism which was essentially came into being via um, the pronouncements of two young women, Kate and Maggie Fox. Mm. Um, he had a terrible end, a, by the way. Yeah, they, <laughs> yeah, yeah. both died alcoholic and poor, very sad. But, you know, this came about, you could say, through the American Civil War, you know, mm. when 2% of the population is killed um, and the whole country is riven by these terrible, 
terrible battles um, and also, you know, disagreements about how a country should be run. Mm. And uh, so modern spiritualism came out uh, in many ways through abolitionism as well. There were some brilliant um, abolitionist women who were very involved with modern spiritualism. Um, and then this sort of gave birth to theosophy and Madame Blavatsky that came into being in the 1870s in New York. And theosophy was the first sort of... Um, uh, belief system that didn't discriminate on grounds of class or gender um, or race. Um, so it gave women who, we've got to remember, did, had no political agency at the time. You know, they couldn't vote. They often were banned from art schools. They weren't allowed to do life studies. And so women were looking for different ways of being in the world where they might have some agency. And spiritualism actually gave them that. Um, and so some of them banded together and started taking instruction from um, other realms, which is how they began making these extraordinary abstract pictures. Mm. And it's important to remember, too, that a lot of the um, early modernist artists from Kandinsky, Malevich, Paul Klee, they were all interested in these, in spiritualism. They were all interested in the theosophy. Of course, Kandinsky's famous book is uh, Towards the Spiritual in Art in 1912, which had a big impact on modernity. Um, and, you know... I love Kandinsky, for example. He's a brilliant artist. But to say that he invented abstraction, mm. you know, in 1911 with one picture is just nonsense. Yeah. I mean, apart from the fact of 19th century women artists, we, as as you mentioned, you know, the brilliance of First Nations art in Australia and elsewhere that has been exploring what we might call abstraction, but which is really a very codified language mm. of mm. belonging That's right. and yeah. understanding. Um, that's been going for tens of thousands of years. Mm. So, um, you know, I think this moment of revisionism with art histories, it's obviously not just me doing it, it's many people doing it. It's looking at art history as if it's a work in progress, mm. you know, not carved in stone. And it's, well, there were many brilliant, you know, white male art historians. Um, they tended to focus on other brilliant white males, you know, and so there were so many exclusions around race, colour, gender, um, class and these exclusions are being having light cast on them now and I think that's really exciting absolutely I mean I discovered from your book uh, Rebecca Cox Jackson who was oh. a um, black preacher feminist visionary and a oh. shaker eldress I mean oh. that's a really serious oh. position for somebody oh. to hold you know yeah. a, an acknowledged wise yeah. woman and leader of a religious yeah. group and the other thing that you were saying about clay and Kandinsky etc there were female artists circulating Mm. around all the groups that they were participating Mm. in as well Mm. as you have said quite rightly it's not as if women weren't there it's Mm. not as if we don't know it's not as if Mm. they're not documented you know they were always there I mean there were women have been around for a long time (laughs) we have been around for a long time and you know there's well documented examples of you know brilliant women working in the renaissance Mm. you know that Vasari talked about in the second Mm. lives of the artists in 1567 I think it was I think he mentions 13 women yeah yeah um you know there were women working in every century against incredible odds but they still managed to be innovators they still managed to have careers and they were there were all sorts of women. You know, there were radical women and conservative women and you know to be a woman is a, you know, itself is a broad church. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly, certainly. Mm. Um and thank goodness for that. Um mm. also what I 
find really interesting is the speaking of Indigenous painters mm. and there's actually I'm just going to look it up in the book because there's a brilliant piece. Yeah. This painting is uh, Yakalpa Hunting Ground from 2013 and it was made by eight Aboriginal women in the APY lands. And, and it's amazing. You look at the APY lands which in Central Australia and they, I mean, I think it's something like one in five people in those lands are artists, full-time yeah. artists. Yeah. I mean, this is a place of extraordinary, extraordinary creativity. And, uh, yeah, this this painting, which um, includes in it a, the story of uh, the Seven Sisters, um, which is a very important story mm. In, mm. In, in these lands about these seven women as um, fleeing from a wicked magician and they fly up and become the Pleiades in the sky and he becomes Orion. And I was really interested in this because I saw this wonderful exhibition at the Museum of Australia um, called The Songlines and the Seven Sisters mm. that was on a few years ago and then came to Plymouth to the box. Yeah. A incredible, incredible exhibition that was totally led by uh, Margot Neal, who's a First Nations curator at the Museum of Australia in Canberra and, and a curatorium of Aboriginal artists um, from these lands. And um, anyway, I, it was amazing seeing and learning more about the Seven Sisters um, because I live just near Seven Sisters Road in London and so mm. it was all these strange connections. But Seven Sisters in London refers to a totally other different story. And then in Greek myths, there's seven sisters as well who are also associated with the Pleiades. And then mm. there are seven sisters in China. And all of these cultures that never connected yeah. somehow yeah. arrived at this story of these seven sisters. And yeah. I found that absolutely fascinating across continents and centuries. Yeah. yeah, because we talk about history in terms of a sort of straight-line lineage mm. and actually it's so... I was trying to say this word the other day and it's I'm not mm. very good at pluralistic you know mm. it's it's lots mm. of different things that are very similar mm. happening at very different times I mean Georgiana Horton who is a huge favorite of mine mm. one of the things that attracted her work to me was my sense mm. of it being indigenous work and then I had to just do a double take mm. and say oh okay it, it's not at all no, it's this a, is a woman making these in 1860s yes in I know yeah. it's yeah. absolutely incredible yeah, it um, I, I love those sort of similarities where you think somehow in a way that I, I, I couldn't articulate mm. and we get back mm. to the writer trying to describe something indescribable mm this sort of commonality and I, I do think it's something to do with some sort of spirit level that that exists within mm. us. Um, I recently went and saw the performer Lucretia Dalt and she's an experimental um, musician and I was sitting there and she was doing the sound piece and I thought if anybody can call the spirits. It's this woman. It was just absolutely wow. amazing. Wow. So coming back to, let's just say, art criticism, mm. art writing, mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that you are strikingly different and very capable of, Jennifer Higgy, is <laughs> um, writing biographies, you know, this sort of biographical um, element that you've had through... Mm. For a very long time, uh, your Instagram was called Bow Down, and it was a bow down to profiles of women who were mm. born on particular days, mm. which was a podcast as well, which sadly is no longer, but <laughs> I understand why. <laughs> it's a lot of work. 
but where where do you see sort of position yourself? I, I suppose in that sense of of being well, you're not really keen on the word critic for no. as an art critic, an art writer, and also in particular talking about uh, female artists. Mm. And you um, you know you've given credit to people like. Hetty Judah, who who talk about the impact of motherhood being, mm. you know, is able to be felt as soon as an artist knows she's pregnant, uh, and also Katie Hessel's just mm. done a book recently. And tell me about the, the the context that you you know really enjoy working in. And I tend to just follow my interests. Really, I mm. mean, there's no grand plan. <laughs> I mean, I do I do feel very passionately about histories of exclusion and. I find that maddening as well and unfair. Mm. And so I'm very driven by that. And as a woman, I'm particularly interested in the exclusions of women artists, I guess. But I'm also just fascinated by how people survive and how they live their lives and how they manage to make meaning of their lives. And, you know, it's all a muddle, isn't it? I mean, everyone's in a muddle. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Me included. Yeah. So... (laughs) So, um, you know, and, and I think there is, you know, you've mentioned, you know, Hedy Judah and, and, and Katie and, you know, there's, there's wonderful people exploring adjacent ideas as well. But, you know, and we stand on the shoulders of giants, you know, like Griselda Pollock or Linda Nochlin, mm. you know, mm. so many brilliant feminist art historians. So, yeah, I just uh, keep following my nose, really. So you've just talked mentioned their writers who mm. you know you feel inspired by, and what about particular artists? I know that mm. you're very keen on Donna Huddleston, obviously, because yeah. her uh, one of her pieces of work, Brighter, um, adorns the cover of your yeah. book. Well, um, I'm so thrilled that Donna's beautiful drawing, Brighter, 2021, is on the cover of um, the UK and Australian editions, and. Um, uh, there's a sort of story in that too because Donna's one of my closest friends. She's also Australian. She's um, from Woolloomooloo in Sydney, and uh, but she lives here in London as well. And um, Donna was actually the first one um, with her then partner, Frank Hannon, mm-hmm. uh, to introduce me to Hilmarath Clint because they were in Ireland. Frank's Irish and they were in Ireland and they saw a very small exhibition of Hilmarath Clint at the Hugh Lane, I think it was. And they thought this was incredible. And at that point, no one knew about Hilmarath Clint. And they came back and they put on this wonderful little exhibition called Dear Hilma in these um, slightly dilapidated rooms Mm. in Fitzrovia. And I found the whole show absolutely fascinating. And they were sort of giving thanks to Hilma. And I was like, who's Hilma? And so they told me about Hilma of Clint. And and then the show came to Camden and we all went and thought it was wonderful. And then I went to the Moderna Museet in Stockholm. And so anyway... It was Donna, really, who introduced me to Hilma. And then, so I think it's wonderful that she's on the cover because she's a great influence on my thinking and we talk a lot about these things. And then Donna did a wonderful performance a few years ago called Witch Dance. It was amazing and she asked me to create um, a piece of music for it. Very, I mean, I'm no great musician at all, but I composed a little piece of music for that. And that was influenced by Mary Wigman, who was a very influential um, choreographer and dancer from the 20s, 30s and 40s in Germany. And so, you know, it's it, having Donna on the cover is very much about this sort of lineage of um, people talking and friends talking and knowledge being conveyed and looking back and looking forward and so. Yeah, and the ideas around spiritualism and this sort of broader 
thinking and mm. mysterious thinking is very much a life lived, not some sort of academic pursuit mm. of yours. And same with Donna. I first saw her work at mm. um, Camden Arts Centre. Mm. And Jira Lowe's work. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely making amazing. Making and making. Yeah. yeah that was yeah, a great yeah, yeah. show. Yeah. I just thought it was completely captivating. Mm. And the way that she you know what it's like because you worked mm. in watercolour and painting, mm. but the way that she keeps a rhythm in her hand mm. is just astounding. Mm. I, I, could, I could never do yeah, anything I like totally that. Agree. There's um, some of her drawings up at the moment um, at Simon Lee Gallery. In, yeah. in Threshold, in, in, that's in right. In Threshold, yeah. yes. If yes. you're in London. Yeah. And but you can't come to your talk because I think it's, it's booked full out. Now. I know, <laughs> and I think there's already a waiting list. So isn't that fantastic? Yeah. I mean, it's you know not a huge space. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think we've already got more than sixty, so I don't think any more will fit in the room. Yeah, that that'll be fantastic. Mm. I'm I am very lucky. I will be squeezing into Great. that one. Fantastic. <laughs> and what about what else is on your bookshelf? What else are you reading at the moment? Uh, well, you're not reading much because you've got so many things I, to no, do with I the launch of day, your... Actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, I do read every day. At the moment, I'm reading Brian Dillon's wonderful book, Affinities, mm-hmm. um, of um, essays. Um, so, yeah, I'm deeply immersed in Brian's wonderful book. He's a great essayist and, and um, thinker. That's That's got my focus at the moment. Oh, and before that, I read uh, Michael Bracewell, who's a dear friend. Uh, he's got a new novel out, and it's his first novel in decades, which is called Unfinished Business. I think at this point, I need to sign off and say thank you very much for being on Art Fictions. Oh, thank uh, you very much, Gillian, for having me. It was completely fascinating. Yeah, I loved it. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you, listeners, and also to today's guest, Jennifer Higgy. Aside from her excellent book, The Other Side, Jennifer is guest curator coming up at MUMA, which is sited at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Her group exhibition, Thin Skin, runs 20th of July till 23rd of September 2023, featuring Australian and international artists who explore the liminal space between figuration and abstraction thresholds between reason and unreason, wisdom and foolishness, life and death, the conscious and unconscious, and laughter and weeping. Now, if you've had a particular experience with spiritualism or any of the ideas that came up in this episode, now, if you've had, now, if you've had a particular experience with spiritualism or any of the ideas that came up in this episode, then don't be a stranger. I'd love to hear from you by emailing artfictionspodcast at gmail.com. And finally, credit where credit's due. Art Fictions was recorded by Andy Armishar in an unedited filmed version, which can be viewed on YouTube at Cubit Community Radio. For this abridged podcast, The music was written and performed by Griffin Knipe, while award-winning animator Joanna Quinn of Beryl Productions created our Jolly logo. Happy listening, reading, seeing and making till next time.